Kilda. I'm Emil Donovan, and today on the detail. COVID-19 cases are ramping up almost everywhere in the world. Italy has recorded the most deaths in one day since the outbreak of the coronavirus began. 368 people have died from COVID-19 in Italy in just a 24-hour period. The World Health Organization has determined northern Italy to be the new epicentre of the virus, overtaking Wuhan in China. Except for the former epicentre, China. Tonight, as much of the world considers new lockdowns to stop the coronavirus, cases have declined substantially in China and South Korea. On his first trip to the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, Chinese President Xi Jinping went on what commentators called a victory lap. He congratulated the people of Wuhan for defeating what's now a global pandemic. So how did the Chinese contain the spread? Can their techniques be applied in other countries? And can we actually believe the information coming out of the country? Anna Fifield's the Washington Post's Beijing bureau chief, and she's a Kiwi, and she's in self-isolation on Waiheke Island in Auckland. Pretty lonely, I have to confess. I've been talking to seagulls, so <laughs> I am possibly losing my marbles, but, um, but the end is in sight. I'll be able to go to my home uh, in five days. I spoke to her by phone with a bit of a grotty connection, so apologies if the sound quality's not what it usually is. Needs must. But let's kick on, maybe starting with the fundamentals. Everyone seems to be saying COVID-19's on the decline in China. Is that true? Yeah, it is very much on the decline. And in fact, now for four days in a row, the number of cases arriving from abroad, so Chinese people coming home from Italy or Iran or places like that with the virus has exceeded the number of domestic transmissions. So China's very um, kind of draconian and uh, decisive efforts to contain the virus have clearly worked in Wuhan. So now the, the rate of domestic transmission is extremely low, uh, almost negligible. The real question is now, I mean, the economy is obviously suffering a lot as a result of this. The numbers have just fallen off a cliff. Uh, so the question is now that China tries to get people back to work and to put the economy back together, is there going to be a spike in cases as, as people, you know, stop social distancing and start mingling together and, uh, you know, will this go up again? In total, there have been more than 80,000 cases of coronavirus in China. The death toll stands at around 3,100, which is a death rate of about 3%. The vast majority of those cases have been in Hubei province, with a few much smaller outbreaks elsewhere. But how is the all-important curve looking? The curve is completely flat now because China has instituted all of these really strict controls. So domestic transmission, human-to-human transmission inside China is almost zero at the moment. The number of new cases that are being found has really, really fallen off the cliff because of the social distancing. What did China actually do to contain this in Hubei province? First of all, China is run by an authoritarian Communist Party leadership. It is, you know, there's no political opposition. There's not even any really dissent in China anymore thanks to the censoring of the internet and things. So Chinese government, China's government can pretty much do whatever it likes. Uh, and so in this case, you know, on the 23rd of January, they acted, first of all, by cutting off all transport links to Wuhan, trains and planes and everything was grounded, and then cities around Wuhan and just kind of spread out. 
And then it turned into a situation where they were ordering people to stay inside their apartment. They were allowing one person to leave every second day to go to the supermarket or do essential things like that. And gradually that moved to nobody allowed to leave at all. You know, deliveries were taken to people's doors and everybody was kept inside. So at the, at the moment, they are beginning to ease up slightly. People are allowed out for medical appointments. I was speaking to one man this week whose wife is pregnant and has been to the hospital for a checkup. But, uh, but even today, Wuhan remains pretty much under lockdown. At the beginning, of course, everybody was very shocked that the Chinese government could do this and would do this, would, would order tens of millions of people basically under house arrest. But that does seem to have proven effective. <laughs> and that's not just Anna's opinion. Here's the Director General of the World Health Organization. The Chinese government is to be congratulated for the extraordinary measures it has taken to contain the outbreak despite the severe social and economic impact those measures are having on the Chinese people. We would have seen many more cases outside China by now, and probably does, if it were not for the government's efforts and the progress they have made to protect their own people and the people of the world. Uh, I mean, one other thing that happens in China, which is very different, is that pretty much everybody lives in the cities in residential compounds. So like in a like a city block will be a group of apartment towers with a gate. So you have to go through that gate, as I do at my home in Beijing, to, to come and go. So they've been regulating, there are security guards at that gate, so that every time you enter and exit, you have to have your temperature checked, you have to show a special pass to prove that you're allowed in and out. So if you're under quarantine, there's no way to get out without being spotted and stopped. So that's something that, you know, an authoritarian government like China has been able to do. And they've really been using all the tools at their disposal to do this. So, you know, smartphones in China are monitoring your activity nonstop. And so they are have been using this to track people, to literally trace people with GPS and see where they're going. But also the facial recognition cameras that can spot people um, and, you know, other trackers and phones that they've been able to use has enabled them to really keep the place under lockdown that other countries, democracies, uh, do not have. China's authoritarian response is in stark contrast to those offered by democracies reluctant to brandish a big stick, the UK for example. Hundreds of scientists in the UK have signed a letter calling for stronger social distancing measures. The call comes days after the government announced its delay strategy and suggested herd immunity control measures as part of this. It means allowing the virus to spread and relying on enough people becoming immune to slow it down. Here's the UK's chief science advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, speaking to Sky News about the likelihood of that happening. In terms of building up a herd immunity within the UK, what, I mean, what sort of percentage of people need to have contracted the virus? Probably about 60% or so. 60%? 60% is the sort of figure you need to get herd, herd I mean, immunity. I mean, even with that, even looking at the sort of the best-case scenario, I know we were talking last week and you were saying, you know, half of 1% to 1% fatality in something like this, that's an awful lot of people dying in this country. Well, 
I mean, of course, we do face the prospect of, of as the Prime Minister said yesterday, of uh, an increasing number of people dying. That is a real prospect. This is a nasty disease. For most people, it's a mild disease. But there is an elephant in the room. How do we know the information coming out of China is actually reliable? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because we don't know that it's reliable. And I mean, certainly at the beginning, China's figures about infections were way too low. They were deliberately not testing people and cremating bodies before they'd been tested and things to to try to keep that number low. So now when we look at the numbers, I don't know that the numbers themselves are accurate, but I look at the trend and the trajectory of it and the fact that it's really come down a lot, I think, tells us the broader picture of what is happening. But wider issues of censorship and transparency of information aren't going away. The really alarming thing that's happened in the past few weeks is the way China has been trying to rewrite the narrative of the virus. Scientifically, we can see that it stemmed from this market in Wuhan. Scientists have said that it seems to have originated in bats and then jumped to an intermediate carrier, which seems to be pangolins, and then gone to humans from there. So that's like peer-reviewed kind of information. But now China has started up this narrative about how you know maybe it didn't come from China. Maybe, in fact, it came from the United States. Yeah. Uh, as part of this broader ideological, political, economic war between the two countries. And one thing that they've really glommed onto is the fact that there were these military games that were held in Wuhan in October last year, where 110 countries uh, were represented, including the US. They had a tiny fraction of the participants, but China's now saying, like, oh, maybe American soldiers let this virus loose while they were there. So... This is, I mean, clearly, I mean, for want of a better term, fake news, uh, clearly something that China is trying to push to absolve itself of the blame for the crisis, because I think they can see that as this, you know, wreaks havoc across the world, there's going to be a lot of blowback against China. The China and USA dynamic here is interesting. China's response to the original crisis wasn't too flash. We'll hear a bit about that soon. But America's, that's another level. The first cases of the virus popped up in China in December, and it was reported to the World Health Organization on December 30th. Here's President Donald Trump on February the 10th. Uh, The virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat, as the heat comes in. Uh, typically, that will go away in April. We're in great shape, though. We're, we have 12 cases, 11 cases. Here's Trump addressing a packed rally on February 28th. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. Whether it's the virus that we're talking about or many other public health threats, The Democrat policy of open borders is a direct threat to the health and well-being of all Americans. Now, you see it with the coronavirus. You see it. Here he is on March the 4th. You look at a percentage, we have a very, very small percentage, and a big percentage of what we have is when we brought in the 40 or so people from the ship. We brought them in, we immediately quarantined them, but you're adding that to the numbers that we had, which were very small. Here he is on March 17th. 
And on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the response to this crisis? I'd rate it a 10. I think we've done a great job. And it started with the fact that we kept a very highly infected country, despite all of the, even the professionals, uh, saying, now it's too early to do that. We were very, very early with respect to China. And we would have a whole different situation in this country if we didn't do that. And yesterday, he was still busy making sure everyone knew whose fault this whole thing is. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? Why do you keep using this? Because it comes from China. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. As of yesterday, there were a touch over 9,000 cases in the U.S., with at least 150 deaths. Meanwhile, China yesterday reported zero local transmissions over a 24-hour period for the first time since the outbreak started. If you look at it through a certain lens, it's almost like America, the self-appointed guardians of the globe, the richest, most developed country in the history of the world, has been supplanted at a time of crisis. It's ruthlessly capitalist health system hampering efforts to widely test for COVID-19. Yeah, well, I mean, China seizes on every opportunity to make the U.S. look bad and to blame the U.S. But in this situation, Donald Trump has made it very easy for them to continue spouting this kind of propaganda. Uh, And the Chinese have, of course, seized upon this to um, show the difference between what they portray as Xi Jinping's decisive leadership and, you know, America's bumbling response in comparison. So, I mean, and there is... As in most propaganda, uh, you know, a germ of truth in that. The fact is that Trump was denying it, but they have really seized on this to portray Xi Jinping as a decisive, powerful leader who got this virus under control, uh, whereas Donald Trump has not been as decisive, you know, according to the Chinese version of events. While the WHO has applauded China's ability to contain COVID-19, the country's initial reaction has not been quite so heralded. China actively suppressed this information at the beginning. So we now know that the first cases began to appear in Wuhan in December, the middle of December, and that this was really elevated. It reached very obvious concern at the end of December. Uh, The president, Xi Jinping, was informed on January the 7th, but still China's government kept on saying that this was you know, uh, just a virus, no need for concern. And they really put their political considerations ahead of public health. So they continued to have these big Communist Party meetings in Wuhan, even as they knew that this virus was spreading. And in fact, you know, because they were trying to pretend that it wasn't a big deal, the city of Wuhan held this mass banquet in the middle of January, where they've been, they've been holding it every year to try and get into the Guinness Book of Records, they had 40,000 families together in one place, eating from giant plates of food and things like all very, very communal. Um, and so this really enabled the virus to spread and get out of control. And the Communist Party let it go. Um, they didn't act at that early stage because they had these political considerations and this desire for stability, as they call it, um, were were preeminent in their minds. 
and there have been some specific case studies of this, right? Like some professors, for example, have been outspoken criticising China's response to the virus. Also, the doctor, I think, who who originally hypothesised that a coronavirus was out. What, what has happened to those people? The news of this first began circulating amongst doctors in Wuhan at the end of December. Yeah, and though there were eight doctors who were talking about this on WeChat, like it's a social media, like a messaging app that people use and which is highly monitored by the Chinese state. And they were all called in and punished and made to write self-criticisms, you know, for apologizing for spreading this fake news. One of the doctors, Li Wenliang, who became kind of the face of this movement and was called a whistleblower, he died of the coronavirus. He was 34 years old, a healthy young doctor, his wife was pregnant with their second child, and uh, you know he really, his death became a lightning rod for the public anger about this situation. Um, and we saw very unprecedented scenes in modern times in that people in Wuhan went out onto their balconies of their apartment buildings and started yelling his name and yelling into the night uh, to celebrate and remember him and as a kind of call to arms um, against the system. That was a, a very pivotal moment. Obviously, he died, uh, unfortunately, but then there have been a number of other people, academics and public intellectuals and dissidents who have spoken out, have written very critical essays about uh, the situation and about the Communist Party's leadership during this period. All of them have disappeared. They have been picked up uh, by police authorities, are being detained. Nothing has been heard of them for weeks on end, which sadly is kind of part of the course in China these days. I was reading an article in the Financial Times a couple of days ago, and the article described this as China's Chernobyl moment. What is meant by that? And do you agree that this could sort of fundamentally alter China's relationship with the rest of the world? That column was written by a fellow New Zealander, Jamil Angelini. Uh, in fact, we're everywhere. Um, yeah, so there's been a lot of talk about this being a Chernobyl moment for China. And what people mean is that this is a moment where the mismanagement of the Communist Party is laid bare, um, as, as it was in Chernobyl. And, I mean, many things are similar there in the way that the central government has tried to blame this all on local governments, uh, you know, the local mismanagement. And don't worry, here comes the, you know, the, the central authorities, whether they be in Moscow or in Beijing, to rescue the situation. So there's a lot about this, about this being a tipping point in the way that the people think about their leadership. But in terms of whether it changes the way China views their leaders, I think uh, actually it will not. And in fact, I think from the Chinese leadership perspective, I think that far from thinking that they should open up a little more and allow people to speak more freely, it will prove to them that they have to double down and that they have to have even tighter controls on the population. So they, now when we see the way that they've used technology to monitor people, um, I think that they will feel vindicated in their you know, big brother technology here and thinking, you know, because we can track people through their phones, because we can track people through their faces and, you know, their, their walking pattern, even as they go about their business, we were able to keep this under control. So I think we can actually see a situation where China keeps many of these 
new forms of surveillance in place long after the outbreak goes. So, so now one of the new things that have happened is you have to register with your real name and your real face uh, when you go on the subway or the bus in China. Uh, so they can really track everywhere you're going. I think that is here to stay and that the Communist Party will just think we need to keep greater control, not less. This might be a question for a medical expert, but you, you were talking about how um, the number of new cases has dropped to an almost negligible level. Is there any suggestion that China is out of the woods, though? I mean, can COVID-19 come back? Can there be a resurgence? Um, yeah, I will do my best as a non-medical expert to answer. <laughs> yeah, they can. Uh, it can. And they, uh, the Chinese government is really worried about this. So now the um, government is really putting in place a lot of heavy restrictions on people who are arriving into the country. So in Beijing, Shanghai, and many cities around the place, all the, all the major international airports that go into China, if you arrive, you have to do 14 days of quarantine in a hotel, in a specific hotel. You cannot go. Like if I went back today, I would be put off to a, sent off to a centralized quarantine center where I would be shut in my room for 14 days and would not be allowed out. So, they'd, and I would have to pay for it as well. So they are really trying to strongly dissuade people from coming back uh, because of that. But I've seen, you know, the number of flights into China obviously had plunged dramatically in the last two months. But now with these other restrictions happening around the world, we've seen a lot of Chinese students and Chinese abroad uh, head home, paying huge amounts of money for the few seats that are remaining on commercial flights to get home. And even if they have to go through this quarantine, because there is a feeling, yeah, that... Um, that the rest of the world is no longer safe. Uh, so, this, so this is really freaking out the Chinese government, to use a technical term, <laughs> uh, and that they are worried about how many of these people are going to come home with coronavirus and then risk a new spike in infections. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan, and thanks to Anna Fifield who joined us under trying circumstances. Earlier this week, China expelled many US journalists working for American publications, including many of Anna Fifield's colleagues at the Washington Post. However, she says she'll be okay, thanks to her New Zealand passport. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. If you're using Apple, please give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell. Ka kite ano. 